Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, and thanks for joining me. I am here with Dr. Victoria Grieve, professor of history at Utah State University to discuss her work, Little Cold Warriors, American Childhood in the 1950s. I'm Julia Gossard, assistant professor of history at Utah State. This is a great treat to be able to talk to another historian of childhood at the same institution. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, Victoria. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me. Um, I, you know, a lot of these podcasts start out with talking about one's inspiration for writing this work. And as I was reading it, I was wondering, why did you decide to look at the history of the Cold War and diplomatic history through the lens of children or about childhood? Uh, well, like a lot of books, this one has a long history rooted in previous projects. So I what I really started out interested in is how culture is politicized. And that's been one of the driving interests for me throughout my, my career. And my first project was about the federal art project during the New Deal. And as I did the research for that book, I ran into so many different references about children taking art classes, how they expressed what was happening to them during the 1930s and the Great Depression, and so that interest in childhood was, was peaked for me through that project. Um, and, you know, kind of stayed on the back burner in the back of my head for a long time. Um, and as my interest shifted to a different time period and different subjects, um, I, I started to think more and more about this project um, in, in terms of child agency um, during this period, because I think childhood had been um, limited. The understandings of childhood in the 1950s had been limited. And it seemed like between World War II and the 1960s, there was a missing link in terms of um, childhood activism, mm -hmm. childhood agency, um, really. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to explore a little bit more about this, this childhood decade, really, between the politicization of war time childhood and this, well, what happens in the 1960s? Suddenly we have all these politically active young people. And so it seemed to me that the way that children were often described or this sort of idyllic childhood of the 1950s didn't quite match. Um, and so that's what kind of got me interested in childhood in the 1950s and then sort of how childhood culture and pop culture and art and literature um, was kind of intersected with these questions of diplomacy um, and childhood as well. Yeah, I, I like what you say there, that's this decade of childhood, because that's really what we, we think about the 1950s in many ways, that things started to be advertised for children, that children started to take a much more prominent place within the family. Yet, as your book also states too, that there's been this somewhat romanticization 
of childhood a little bit too in this idea that it was a period of innocence, but you're actually saying children were more politically active, it was politicized, and they were part of the historical process. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's two-pronged, right? I think I wanted, uh, part of the idea of the 1950s of childhood is that they're victims, right? Victims right. of the Cold War and and ducking under desks. And I wanted to show how active um, children were as political people as well. So I did want to see, I wanted to kind of de-romanticize it and show this sort of political activism of children. And I should also say that, um, you know, one of the criticisms of this book is that that romantic notion of childhood is very um, specific to white middle-class children. And so there's a lot that this book doesn't talk about um, in terms of, of racial issues, um, in terms of civil rights and all of those things. So it is a, a limited in scope to this sort of romanticized segment of the population of 1950s childhood. Right. I think that, that brings me to, you know, a, a concept that I think a lot of us dealing with the history of childhood and youth have, which is the idea of agency. You know, this has become a little bit of almost an A word, you know, kind of a four little word in the history <laughs> right. of childhood and youth. Um, you know, I, I dealt with this in my own work in terms of people saying, well, how are you using the term agent? It is one's actions yeah. enough to establish agency. Um, and I just wondered, how are you approaching that in this work? You know, you do this, I, I thought, in a very um, kind of forthright way. But I wonder if you could talk to the listeners about that a little bit. Well, I totally agree with you, Julia. I totally agree with you. you everybody is going to ask you um, how you define it, how you find it, how you talk about it. And so, yeah, I did, you know, you have to acknowledge that in certain places you are you can't necessarily hear as much from the historical actors that you want to hear from um, and that goes beyond the history of childhood to lots of other fields so how do we get there how do we how do we make sense of it and for me my interest in cultural products and the the politicization politicization of culture helps me in that because i like to look for and hear people's voices from the past in art, in literature, in sort of nonverbal, non-written ways, right. which is useful in the history of childhood. Um, so that's one way. And I think the other way is to kind of um, accept in some ways that all of us are limited in, in particular ways. And again, it's not just childhood that lacks forthright agency in every situation. Everybody is molded by certain circumstances. Obviously children and more than others. Um, so I, as you said, I tried to be somewhat forthright about it. I had to rely on, we know children were exposed to this, these ideas in certain numbers. I tried to account for, like in how many children read the Lone Ranger comic book? Mm -hmm. Millions and millions of children did, right? What did they get out of it? Well, that's a little harder to say, right? right? But one way I could measure that is by how they participated in a federal savings bond program that relied on the Lone Ranger to sell stamps, right? Um, and again, there are lots of reasons why children might have participated in that. Um, but I think that there are ways to get at 
what children might have been thinking and and imagining their roles to be without direct written sources. Definitely. And so I just think, you know, for for you know, you tell great stories about how children sort of pushed back on rules and regulations. Um, and I think you have to look for um, kind of nonverbal clues sometimes for certain mm-hmm. populations, children included, to kind of get a sense of what they were thinking, feeling, and how what options they had to act. Yeah. I this is reminding me a lot of an article that I read not too long ago by Mona Gleason, who is a historian of childhood and youth yeah. um, in Canada. And mm-hmm. she, I think it's called the agency trap. And she talks about this exact same methodology that there's not always going to be these immediate written sources from the children saying why they did things or how they felt about particular ideas. But the important thing is, is that we can use our sort of empathy to fill in the blanks in our historical knowledge to help us guess how those children would have reacted. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. And so, you know, there's some of that in this book for sure. Um, and then, you know, inevitably, I think that historians of childhood have to go back to, you know, the, the cultural constructions of childhood, mm-hmm. of the context of the time, what adults were thinking about children and how that world was constructed, the um, possibilities for children in particular historical moments and places and, you know, dependent on race and gender and ethnicity and class and all of those sort of modifiers. But yeah, like you have done, like Gleason has done, you know, you have to look for reasonable actions maybe. Yeah. um, Or reasonable reactions and reasonable places where you could read into what they might have been thinking as, as a result of certain actions. And, you know, some are more specific, you know, um, I have an example in the book of, of, you know, yes, there are these big civil preparedness um, drills in schools, and some students refuse to participate in them. So we have, you know, for older children, very clear, there's no written record of the student explaining exactly what they were thinking, but there is a, a written record saying these students refuse to participate. So... Which you have you know, to imagine with like a student, is that, is, that a, is that a point of rebellion or is it just they're a difficult student? You know? Right. Or is it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. But you could also say that a lot of the students did participate because it was a day off of school, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> um, when they had to leave school to go do a, a you know, a sheltered home drill. So there are so many reasons for for these different actions. But I think as historians of the particular time and place, we have an expertise in, in understanding the options and what, what might have been the rationales. So uh, yeah, it is the perennial question though, for sure, for historians of childhood. Um, it's a tough one. And I think it, for every piece of work, we're, we're asked to kind of justify it, reasonably so, but uh, yeah. It does become a little bit of, of a circular thing at some points, though. But I, I really appreciated the way you handled this, especially in Chapter 2, A Small Paintbrush in the Hands of a Small Child, um, because you discuss art as a means of coercion as well as a political act here. And I think that this was a space where you were able to demonstrate the ways in which, you know, sometimes these children were prompted 
to create a particular piece of art, or they were maybe coerced in subconscious ways to create certain types of art or be more drawn to certain types of things. Yet you're also demonstrating in some ways this was very political as well, even if it was coerced. Yeah, that was one of my favorite chapters to, to research as well as to think about in lots of different ways. As you said, so this art program was specifically founded by a woman who you know, was involved in the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, which was a left-leaning organization throughout its history. And she founded this organization very much as a means of international friendship and communication. There were lots of art programs that were sort of um, a contest whose, whose winners were sort of sent abroad, but she founded this program for very different reasons. And um, what I found so interesting was that even for those reasons, which were very different than sort of State Department reasons um, for why this would be successful, the State Department looked at this artwork and said, oh, this is great advertising for the American way of life. Um, as opposed to a Soviet way of life. Um, so very different reasons for, for supporting the program, and yet they found common ground, right, um, right. in this sort of international understanding between children, one more propagandic and one more sort of um, international friendship. Um, so that was interesting to me. And then the artwork of the children itself, this is also in an archive, um, um, shoot, I just forgot the name of the archive, um, in, in Pennsylvania, it'll come to me. <laughs> anyway, so all of this artwork is there and some of it was accompanied by essays. So this is a magic moment when you have the artwork along with an essay written by a child explaining what he or she thought they thought that they were doing, right? That's like a treasure um, trove for, for I know. childhood. <laughs> So the artwork itself, like you said, you know, it was sort of an open-ended set of parameters, but still, you know, this idea of, of voluntold, right? Here's what you're going to do, yeah. um, but it's sort of open-ended. Um, and the ways in which students, in, in which kids sort of responded um, to those prompts. And some, you know, were very amenable to a propagandizing way of looking at the world. So here's an American child with this sort of very well-appointed middle-class home, which is then sent out into the world as an example, at least for State Department officials, of look at the prosperity of capitalism. Yeah. Um, and, and then other children, you know, I cite two examples of what might be considered sort of critical views of the world in terms of race relations or poverty. These were not the sorts of images that the State Department wanted children to send out into the world. But even those were able to be framed in a way that said, here's an America with our scars and all, but we're always getting better. We're yeah. always improving, right? That idea on progress was really, I, I really, I really enjoyed, um, you know, you have a picture in there from, from one of the girls who has drawn her home, right? The typical like middle, upper middle class American home at that point in time. And I thought, you know, from her perspective, that may be very innocent, right? Just like, okay, I'm going to show off my kitchen and where my, you know, my brother lives and I live and everything. But the ways in which that could be used for diplomatic purposes is, is, was really masterful. 
Yeah, and I, I really enjoyed see, thinking about this artwork in all these different possible interpretations. The way that the founder of this organization, which is called Art for World Friendship, her name is Maud Muller, um, you know, the, the way that she would have seen it and interpreted it as she mm -hmm. sent out, you know, a stack of artwork to a class in, you know, the Philippines or in, in the Netherlands. Um, and the way a State Department might, official might have interpreted this as well. Um, and the way that the child herself yeah. um, was thinking about conversing with another child across the world. Um, and how all of this transcends language, right? The yeah. language barrier among children was always the issue. So this is a way of sort of um, transcending those boundaries um, in really interesting you know, nonverbal ways, which is great. And that too, the, the quote unquote enemy in this situation, by having a child do this, it doesn't look nefarious. It doesn't look necessarily subversive, right? It could be looking at that same idea of the romanticization of this innocence of childhood in many ways. Yeah. And that's one of the core arguments of the book, right? We yeah. can all look at these. Isn't that sweet? Isn't this world friendship just great? And we're building the blocks of peace, right? But this is political. It's mm -hmm. absolutely political. And, um, you know, to frame this, this, this time of childhood as innocent, I don't think is correct. I think children's work and ideas and the very idea of political innocence is politicized oh, yeah. um, throughout the um, and so this is just one more way for me of, of saying, sure, you can look at it this way. And that's exactly how the United States government said to look at it. We're not politicizing our children here. This is just friendship. But of course it was political, right? Absolutely. Uh, but it's the United States has such a public-private approach to this sort of thing. So you can look at the Soviet Union and say, yes, they're the, the child... Um, the Young Communist League, for example, is, is explicitly propagandizing, right? Here in the United States, we just have school children sending pictures. Um, <laughs> but they're, they're both clearly doing the same things on different levels. Right. It was really interesting for me to read this, especially about kind of the, the children teaching the other children, making these connections, because you and I work on very different time periods. Um, you know, I work on early modern France, but they're doing something similar, though they are sending children themselves abroad to the Ottoman Empire or to Siam or to Pondicherry during this point in time and attempting to have them make friends, learn languages, share customs and beliefs as a way of almost a diplomatic presence. So it's interesting yeah. to see this sort of long durée look at this diplomatic strategy in terms of tapping in to the idea of childhood innocence, yet knowing all of these actions are politicized. Yeah, it is. Well, we could do a sort of a global collection, couldn't we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Over times and places, the ways in which, um, yeah, the powers that be sort of mobilize these ideas and mobilize, you know, ideas and bodies of children and children, children's labor in this sort of way to advance, uh, to advance diplomatic goals in that way. Oh, definitely. Um, I think that brings us to a good point to talk about your source base, because obviously art is one of your big source bases here. But as a historian of childhood, obviously we have to be a little bit more creative in what we're looking about. And we've touched on this a little bit in our conversation so far, but I wondered if you could talk 
um, you know, about the difficulty of, of hearing children's voices in the archive. And if you could just talk about your methodology there a little bit. Uh, sure. Yeah. As I was saying, I went to lots of different places for this and looked at lots of different sources in, in an attempt to, to um, get at this. So I got to go read lots of uh, Lone Ranger comic books to sort of, um, and you know, you put yourself in, hopefully, you know, the, the space, the mindset of a, of a 10 year old in 1955, right? Just, just, <laughs> try to get a sense of what you might be gleaning from, from some of these things. Um, and so, you know, there's in one sense, okay, trying to put yourself in that historical moment. Um, so I did that, you know, with comic books and trying to understand the political implications of this, um, this artwork. Um, and in some of these, what I found really interesting was trying to link the ways in which private um, sorts of culture, comic books, for example, um, were then very clearly linked to state efforts to mobilize, right? right. Um, and so finding sources that sort of made those connections for me, I found to be a good um, sort of nexus point to look at how that worked. Um, so I kind I tried to choose sources that were in between those two worlds that linked those two worlds. Mm -hmm. So you know, comic books and and you know, Lone Ranger pop culture was then mobilized by the federal government to sell um, stamps to support you know um, Cold War imperatives. And this art project is created by children for one ostensible reason, but then mobilized again for these, these other source, these other reasons. So I tried to find areas that, that linked those two private public ways that the United States has approached this question, this problem, mm -hmm. this, this, this strategy. Um, so yeah, comic books and, and toys. And a lot of this was sort of unchartered territory for me. So I had to do a lot of um, self-education in understanding how we can, you know, use toys um, as a site of investigation for childhood agency and, and the history of childhood um, yeah. and how that changes, right? How once you move into a commercialized period of toys and production, it's very different um, because they often have very clear uses right mm -hmm. um for the ways in which these toys are supposed to be used is very clear there are you know it's intended to be used in a certain way now obviously that doesn't mean that's how children are going to use them um but just the function of toys over time um was interesting to kind of map out on this longer sort of trajectory and I thought too, the, um, the insistence on advertising as well, in terms of like advertising toys for kids, advertising everything for kids, was this really successful way of the United States inculcating its own citizens too? Yeah, the ad campaigns were really interesting. And again, you have that, for me anyway, very fascinating public-private sort of yeah. effort. Messages were the same for domestic consumption and by you know, Goodyear Tire Company as they were through the United States Information Agency 
and Franklin Books abroad. So to me, it's amazing how consistent the messaging was, yeah. regardless of really how it was put out there in the world. Um, and that's what, you know, to me, that's what's very sort of interesting about, you know, introducing childhood into this whole thing as well. Because um, it seemed particularly powerful when using images of youth or using children themselves um, as the agents of this message yeah. through advertising or through government programs. So, you know, for example, in that, in that chapter on advertising, um, you know, the ways the children were asked to write essays and then speak them publicly. And then the USIA would, would record them verbatim and then send them out in, you know, packaging as news to other parts of the world. So it was all this worked into this larger um, system of, of, of messaging. And that section for me is so interesting because I, I, there's, a, there's an image of a boy, I think it's a Boy Scout maybe, or maybe it's just a young man and he's sending out a truth statement, right, over the radio. And yeah, I think he's Radio Free Europe. Yeah. And it's so interesting to see the ways in which this idea of truth was truth, you know, with, with capital uh, quotation marks around it was mobilized in this way where, you know, I've been thinking a lot in our current moment, there's a lot of these ideas of like, well, what's true, what's truth, what's not, but that's been something that's been a part of American history for a very long time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, yeah, that image is of a young boy. He's speaking over Radio Free Europe to his, to the to the children trapped behind the Iron Curtain, and he's sending these these messages of of truth, capital capital T, in the campaign for truth. Um, so, yeah, and the idea behind that, of course, is that well, he's just a young child. He's not doing anything nefarious. He's not, you know, this is not fake news. This is just an earnest young young boy reaching out, you know, across the Iron Curtain. So that question of, of truth seems more true coming from a child, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's actually a really good point in terms of thinking about there's often this trope of, you know, from, from the mouths of babes, right? That they yes. speak yes. the truth in some way um, that obviously serves different Which I guess is why the French, you know, yeah, the French Empire would do a similar thing in the 17th century, right? Yeah, ex exactly. I mean, I think that this is something that we see used in so many different contexts around the world um, as, as a play on children's innocence that we strongly believe in this concept. Um, it's, it's so interesting there. I think too, you know, you've done a lot with visual culture, which is really interesting um, to see and, and to um, recognize as a historian, just because I, I don't really do that much visual culture, but the way you're able to look at these sources and be able to analyze them from the children's perspective, from the perspective of the government, this public-private is really interesting here. And I presume that a lot of people will use your work um, to help them teach these different concepts. I teach Western Civ, the second half, and I'm already thinking about, you know, I want to incorporate that image of the young man on Radio Free Europe in my discussion about radio and its uses in the Cold War, because I think that it just, it connects too, because when children start learning about other children, they're automatically a little bit more interested, not saying that college students are children, but, you know, there is a, there's a tap into youth there in many ways. Yeah, well, thank you. I hope people do use it to, to teach 
teach that sort of methodology. And it, again, for the, for the history of childhood, I think it's valuable because where we don't have written records, we have to look for these other sources, exactly. um, these nonverbal sources. So I think art is a fabulous way to do it. And I think the way that, as you were, how you would use that image is how power, how sources of authority use images of children and childhood as well. So there are all those different ideas behind it, not just children, but adult images of children and adult usage of children. Um, But yeah, the idea also behind that um, was not only to mobilize American children to support U.S. policies by reaching out across Radio Free Europe and by sort of, you know, creating an opportunity for students to write an essay about what America means to them, Mm -hmm. which they then get to read over the radio. Um, But there's all, you know, Radio Free Europe was also about um, indirect attraction of young people. So, you know, the jazz that was played and American music and American genes, this wasn't, you know, America is, is superior to the Soviet Union. It's, pop culture, it's, you know, style, it's all of those sorts of products as well that that don't have the the written or verbal ways to go about using them, but, um, you know, are very powerful in this propaganda war uh, across the board, right? Exporting American cultural products in and of themselves. Yeah. That was another way of going about the Cold War, war and, of ideas, I guess. And marketing them to youth who are, you know, in, in everybody's minds, more impressionable, perhaps more willing to look beyond, you know, the faults that their parents see in the other side. Absolutely. And this Margaret Peacock's work on Cold War childhood was really um, important for me when I was writing this book, because her, her idea is essentially that by the 1960s, students had been learning about, kids had been learning about these other cultures for so long um, that the threat part of the Cold War tended to diminish over time. Right. And young people were looking at this other culture as something, as a source of interest and um, something to talk about rather than to um, fight against. And so the whole the, the thaw was essentially because of younger generations coming up. And so you can really rewrite the history of the Cold War from a totally different perspective um, by including the history of, of childhood and youth. You know, apart from the military matters and the high diplomacy, I really find it interesting to look at these huge questions by shifting that perspective a little bit to understand um, you know, the 60s look really different mm-hmm. if you describe the early Cold War from this perspective. Um, and I just think it really, really um, enriches the understanding of this time period by by including, you know, not high state actors and not, um, you know, the official narratives by looking at these, just these little kind of under the radar ways that ordinary people were making sense of all of this. Yeah. Um, and how that contributes to the end of the Cold War. I think it really matters beyond high politics. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that your, your book does that very well and, and completely shows that by, by the end of it. Um, you know, thinking about this idea of visual culture, I, I'm just so struck by the image 
on the cover of your book, this, this image of a young girl in pigtails, probably blonde hair, you know, sitting there in a traditional 1950s outfit for anybody that's seen Mad Men, I imagine that it is Sally Draper sitting there, but she has a gas mask on. And I thought this was such a captivating image to put on the cover of your book. And I wonder if you could talk about, you know, why this image, how does this wrap up what you're thinking? Well, I, the, the picture itself is interesting to me because it's not set in any particular context, right? It's completely straight on. There's no clue around her in the background. She's not in a classroom. She's just standing with a completely blank background. And so I think the viewer is kind of immediately uncomfortable yeah. with an image like that because we don't have any clues, right? We always, our mind always is trying to set this person or this thing in a context. And there isn't one beyond her, her clothing and um, the gas mask itself. And so, you know, as we, from the beginning, when we started talking about 1950s childhood, um, you know, my idea here is to just kind of make people a little bit uncomfortable with this popular understanding of childhood in the 1950s. And that image to me does that visually very quickly, um, just sort of discomforts the viewer with its blankness. Um, and so, you know, I don't, the gas mask itself, I think is a historical in this image. Um, it's more of a World War I sort of full on um, right. gas mask. Um, that you wouldn't have seen in the 1950s. So there are, it's a really interesting image because it's, it's just not quite right, yeah. which is one of the writing, you know, arguments of my book is that we don't have it quite right on the 1950s, on the Cold War, um, on childhood. And so when I was looking at possible images for this, that one just jumped out at me and struck me like, oh, that gives me the feeling of what I'm trying to say um, in this book because um, it's not quite right. And so that's why I chose this sort of bizarre, it's a little bit of a strange image, I think, um, but that's what I like about it. That's why I chose it as, as the cover for this book. I hope it, I hope it sort of does what I hoped it would do. It, in it terms does. Of, People say, huh, that's weird um, in a way that makes them a little bit uncomfortable so that they want to kind of understand what's behind that discomfort. I think it works on, on all of those different levels. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you talked about kind of the ahistoris, the, the ahis, ahistorical aspect of this, because I was looking at it, I was like, that looks like it's from World War One. But I think that that's also yeah. playing into this like fear right? If this was taken during the 1950s, it could be playing into that, that fear that we're regressing or that this is going to happen in that way. Yeah. And it's, you know, the image is also funny because she's just this young girl, but she's kind of blase, kind of holding this oxygen tank with mm -hmm. this giant mask on. Um, you know, the, her, her posture is sort of um, casual, I guess, in, in a way. I definitely did not want a picture of a child under a desk. I did not want a picture of a child ducking and covering. Um, yes. That's what I wanted to kind of dislodge. Right? Yeah, that, so, seems to be, um, that seems to be one of the core components of your book is there's more to this than just the duck and cover, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that to me is child as victim and it kind of just calls on a trope that everybody's really comfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, uh, even even the you know even the generation that lived through it, um, you know even if they didn't duck and cover, 
they remember ducking and covering because it's right. such a trope for that generation. It's very interesting um, in terms of people's memory of that time. Yeah. Well, Victoria, this has been really fun to talk about this. Um, I hope that everybody will read Little Cold Warriors, American Childhood in the 1950s from Oxford University Press. And thanks for having such an illuminating conversation with me. Yeah, thank you. It was really fun. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.